If you have a, a copy of the Bible, you can open it. We are getting near the end of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. And we're hopefully going to finish that chapter, and then we just have one chapter left, uh, which we're going to take about three Sundays to work through. Uh, I'll preach one of those. Uh, Pastor Larry will preach one, and then Andy Royer, who many of you know, uh, uh, sent one from our church. He and his family are going to be in town. He's going to preach one of those messages for us as well. Uh, but I want to say thank you, as I usually do, uh, for your generosity as a church family, uh, for you as individuals or families, uh, for your ongoing generosity to the church. Uh, I get to perch, so to speak, to see certain ways that benefits uh, our church and the kingdom. One small way uh, this week that we used funds uh, that you've given in is we had four of our members, uh, one of our elders, one of our deacons, uh, and one of our field workers, and then a, a member at large, so to speak, um, go to a missions conference this week, a Radius Missiology Conference, to keep growing. And their understanding and ours by extension of this great commission and how we're to go about it. And uh, we'd never want to think that we've arrived in our understanding and practice of that. And so they were uh, going on our behalf uh, to be able to learn and grow and bring back lessons learned. And so thank you for your generosity that's even enabled us to do something like that this past week. Uh, all right, Hebrews 12. We are going to uh, start in a moment in verse 18 and go to the end of the chapter. But you'll see why, I think, when we read the text. This text has got me thinking about earthquakes. Uh, and shaking of the earth this week. And one of the many reasons I'm glad to live in Indiana is that we rarely have earthquakes. Uh, but I, I looked up what is the largest recorded or known earthquake in our nation's history. Uh, some of you may know this. This happened before I was born. Uh, but back on Good Friday, which was March 27th of 1964, uh, there was a massive earthquake near Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, I know a little bit about the Richter scale. I know when you start getting in like sevens and things like that, they're really strong earthquakes. This was a 9.2 on the Richter scale, which is an exponentially growing thing. Uh, 9.2 on the Richter scale, there was mass devastation. I'm surprised how few people actually lost their lives. But I was listening to a podcast about that earthquake uh, as I had my mind on it, uh, this subject. And uh, there was a quote that they shared during this podcast of a former mayor of that city of Anchorage that was reflecting on what they learned from living through that earthquake. And this quote just stuck with me, and it'll be up on the screen. Uh, but that former mayor had said, Even now I can look at the solid ground out the window and know that it's not permanent. It can change any time. It just moves. Everything moves. That was the sentiment that this person had, this lingering effect uh, of that earthquake, is feeling the instability of the earth, the things that we look at and try to see as solid and unmoving. And that effect that that earthquake had on them is not unusual from what I gather. I've lived through, I think, two very, very small earthquakes that I can remember. But when you live through a larger earthquake, and maybe some of you have, uh, it's not unusual to have a, a lingering effect like that, where you start to have a fear, uh, where you start to have anxiety about those things, especially when you live through a powerful one. Because what once seemed stable, what once seemed unmoving, you now know is not. Uh, that it could move, that at any moment it could shake. And we long as human beings in our physical bodies to know that the ground beneath us is solid don't we? Uh, I'm like that, at least. And I don't think that's just fear in my heart. We, we long to know that the ground beneath us is solid. And if that's true of our physical bodies, 
I think it's also true even to a greater degree of us spiritually, uh, that as we think of our souls, uh, not just soles of our feet, but like our souls, right, and our spiritual being, we want to know that where we are standing spiritually is solid ground, that, that it will not be shaken, that it will not be uh, uh, dissolved, that it will not crumble. But when we experience affliction, when we experience suffering, difficulty in our life, Often we are tempted to think that the, our, the ground beneath our spiritual feet is shaking. That not just my life circumstances, but maybe even my standing with God. Maybe even his favor over me, his presence with me. That ground feels like it's starting to shake. And that is unsettling uh, in our souls. And so the question that I think this text will help us address today is, can we find truly solid ground spiritually? Can we find it? And if so, if we do find it, what sort of effect should the solidity of that ground have on us? Like, how should it impact us when we remember how solid that ground under our spiritual feet truly is? And so that's what this text is going to speak to, real briefly, so we know where we're at in this letter, because I know some of you are guests, you haven't been with us. This letter we call Hebrews was written by someone we don't know. Uh, it's, uh, it's unusual in that way. We don't know who wrote this letter, but we know who it was written to. Uh, it was written to some early Jewish Christians uh, who'd grown up Jewish, but had heard about Jesus as Messiah. They had come to trust in him, being crucified and raised for them. But, as we've seen again and again in this letter, it's like a broken record by now if you've been with us. Uh, they were tempted in their experience in their day to go back to their Jewish practices. To, because opposition was starting to come against them for their Christian identity. Them identifying with Jesus was starting to bring opposition, mistreatment. And so they're feeling that ground beneath their feet start to shake, right? And they think, well, that's solid ground. We could go back there. Like people lived there for centuries and millennia. We could go back to those old ways of living. That's what they were tempted to do. But the author again and again is telling them, do not go back. Like stay on this ground. Stay where you are. Keep moving forward. In chapter 12, what we've seen the last few weeks, uh, he has been calling for them to endure God's loving discipline. He's used that metaphor of a heavenly father, how he, he disciplines us out of love. That affliction that comes to us is not out of anger, but it's out of love. And here, as we get to this text, the end of Hebrews 12, he's going to shift from this image of a father with his children. He's going to use some other visual images. He's going to talk about mountains. He's going to talk about shaking of things, uh, these very physical, earthly images he's going to uh, use. And then at the end, the last sentence or two, he's going to press toward a response. Like when we think through these things and we know the truth that those images show us, what's the response that's called forth from us, particularly in how we worship this God? And so that's what we're going to read. Uh, he's going to contrast two mountains. He's going to contrast two eventual outcomes of people and of kingdoms. Then he's going to call for a response at the end. So uh, follow along with me. I'm going to read this text for us, verses 18 through 29 of Hebrews chapter 12. So this unknown author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continues writing this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize this, these two paragraphs and my message uh, through it, what I think is speaking to us and to these original hearers this way, and then we'll unpack it, is that the worship of those who experience the security of Zion should be marked by sweetness and sobriety. That the worship of those who experience the security of Zion should be marked by sweetness and sobriety. And I'll explain from this text what I mean by that and what I think this author was trying to get across. So I want to start with this contrast in the first paragraph of these two mountains. You probably picked up on that, that he's using these very visual, vivid pictures of two mountains, and he's contrasting them, right? In verse 18, he says, you have not come to this mountain, right? And then in verse 22, he says, but you have come to this mountain. And so he's going to describe what both of these mountains are like, and we'll see a little bit of what he has to say. But he's picturing two mountains and two assemblies of people at these mountains, right? And not just the mountain itself, but who is there, what's happening at these mountains. And the first one is going to be Mount Sinai, and it's to picture and remind them of the old covenant, the way God met with his people under the old covenant. And then the second mountain, we're going to see clearly he even calls it explicitly Mount Zion. It's this heavenly mountain where God's new covenant people gathered together. And there's some similarities between the two, but he's especially trying to note the contrast between these two mountains and press them to understand which one are you coming to God on? Uh, which way are you approaching God? At Mount Sinai or Mount Zion? And so the first mountain he talks about, I want to briefly uh, share what he's describing. It's in verses 18 to 21. It's Mount Sinai, right? A lot of you are probably familiar with Mount Sinai. Uh, he doesn't use that specific name here, but that is clear as day what he's referring to. And by all his descriptions is what happened at Mount Sinai back in the days of Moses. Those, these things he's kind of shorthand describing here in 18 through 21 are described much more in depth if you want to go back and read it in Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, the, these events that he's referring to when God met with his people at Mount Sinai. That was the time where God, the most notable thing was God was giving them the law. God was imparting his law to the Israelite people. And a few of the things he describes here are notable for how they're going to contrast with Mount Zion. So a couple things I would note. He gives a really long description, almost just like rapid fire, of all these descriptions of what Mount Sinai was like and the assembly there. But a few of them. 
there's this ominous feel to Mount Sinai, right? Like he talks in verse 18 of a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. That, that's not exactly an inviting type of feel to it, right? It's, it's an ominous, dark, gloomy, those are the terms he's using, mountain and a scene. And more than that, then there, there's embedded in what was happening there, and he's pointing this out, there's this idea of distance from God. Not of closeness to God, even though God is meeting them, meeting Moses on the mountain, but there's distance. And there's even a threat of death that is referred to if they cross a certain line. If you go back and read that story, what he's alluding to when he quotes uh, this sentence in verse 20, how if even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Essentially what the picture is of what happened back at Mount Sinai is God is up on the mountain and the smoke and fire, but at the base of the mountain, it's almost like a line is established and then a trumpet blasts and the people are supposed to come up to that line and no further. And God makes it very clear, you cross this line, you die. Like whether you're an animal doing it accidentally or you're a person doing it intentionally, you cross this line, death. That, that's the image. It's not of closeness. It's of distance and even of threat. Moses could go up because God beckoned him. And by his grace, he allowed him to come. But everyone else that was not that meteor had to stay down. And the result, understandably, that he highlights here in this text was things like feeling terrified, right? Verse 21, it was a terrifying sight that Moses saw. And even Moses said, I tremble with fear. There's terror, there's fear, uh, there's trembling that's taking place there at the base of Mount Sinai when God meets with his people, giving them that old covenant law. So that's what he says is this first mountain. The second mountain is pictured in verses 22 through 24, and that's the mountain called, that he refers to as Mount Zion. Uh, if you know the Bible much, you may be familiar with that term. Uh, if you read through the Old Testament some, you start to see that this term Zion uh, kind of gained momentum as time went on. That It was a, a term originally used to describe the earthly city of Jerusalem. Like Jerusalem is essentially like at the, the top of a mountain, top of a, a, a a peak, and it, it was referred to as Zion. So what they would go up to Zion when they were going to visit Jerusalem, right? It was to describe this earthly city. But what you see pick up momentum in the Old Testament is that slowly it starts to also not just connote Jerusalem, but the heavenly city. Like that God's people are going up not just to an earthly city that could crumble, but to an eternal city of God that has its foundations in the heavens. And so that term has started to, to build up steam. People would have known, hey, this is referring to Jerusalem, but also to this eternal heavenly city. And he gives quite the contrast of this mountain, this city, with Mount Sinai, right? So a few things I would note here in the text for you. Instead of it being a picture of darkness and gloom, it's a picture of joy, right? Of, he says, you have come to innumerable angels, which is an amazing thing to think about. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. They would have these gatherings as communities and that were joyful and celebratory, saying that's the type of assembly that's happening on Mount Zion. It's not gloom and fire and doom, and, and uh, it's one of joy, and it's like more like a festival. Another key difference is at Mount Sinai, it was like an assembly of sinners at the base of the mountain, right? 
At Mount Zion, it's like this assembly of the saints at the top of the mountain with God. Uh, that he no, no, A few phrases he uses, he says, you've come to the assembly of the firstborn in verse 23, right? And then as verse 23 ends, he says, you've also come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those are terms, descriptions referring to people who were sinners like us, but now have run their race. And, and they are experiencing full life in the presence of God. They've now been made perfect. They, they have been granted full and final access to God forever. And so that's another difference. But the, I think the key difference, though, is this difference of distance and staying away. That's at Mount Sinai. And the contrast here at Mount Zion of God essentially saying, come be with me. Like, I am glad to have you dwell here. Because he says that we, uh, we come to God. Did you catch that? Like he says, he gives all these descriptions. You've come to this, and you've come to this, and to angels, and to the assembly of the firstborn, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. But then he also says, you have come to God. Right? And he says, more than that, you have come to Jesus. Like, that is what makes Zion most sweet and pleasant. is isn't fellow human beings or angels. It is the presence of God. And God is inviting and welcoming people to come to this mountain, to this city, this heavenly city of Jerusalem. But how can that be? Right? Like, we read Isaiah 6 at the start this morning, right? When we are sinners, how can... There was a reason God drew a line at the bottom of Mount Sinai, right? Like, God is holy and we're not. Like, how can it be that you have come to God, the judge of all? Like, how can that be? The only way that can be is because we not only come to God, but we come, he says, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That is, he is how we come to God. We don't just come to him with our own merit saying, please let me in, God, I've tried my best. The way that we are allowed access to this mountain, to Mount Zion, to the presence of God, is because we come to him through Jesus, right? The mediator of this new covenant. He has gone before us, right? He did what Moses couldn't do. Moses couldn't bring that whole assembly up the mountain, right? Because Moses was a sinner. And Moses had no offering that could atone for the sins of all the people at the base of the mountain, let alone himself, right? But Jesus, this is what Hebrews has said again and again and again and again, is Jesus has offered such a sacrifice, that Jesus is the one who actually, you read Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, like the ones who are clean and pure in heart and don't lift up uh, their heart to idols. That's none of us. The only person who can actually come and ascend the hill of God is Jesus, the one who is perfect. He could have gone to Mount Zion just on his own, right, on his own perfect record, but he wanted to bring us with him, right? He wanted to bring us to Mount Zion as well, and the only way to do that was for him to lay down his life as a sacrifice for us, to suffer at the cross for the sins of sinners like me and you, and to bear God's wrath so that it might be removed from us so that we actually could ascend Mount Zion. Not because we're clean in of ourselves or pure in of ourselves, because we are with Jesus. He has borne our guilt. He has borne our sin, borne our punishment. And then his righteousness, his good record that he has, that allows him to charge up Mount Zion and ascend back to heaven where he is right now, his good record is what allows us to come with him to the presence of God there at Mount Zion. He mentions Abel's blood here at the end of 24. I don't have time to elaborate on that story, but if you remember, Abel was the first human being to die. He was murdered even by his brother. 
And if you read back on that story, it's like his blood, God says, was like calling out from the ground to him. And what the, the connotations of that story was like for vengeance or for justice to be served. Like this man was struck down, there needs to be justice happens so the murderer can be potentially judged and struck down. Uh, but Jesus' blood, he says, speaks a better word than Abel's. Like Jesus was murdered as well, right? But his blood doesn't speak vengeance. And God's going to have vengeance upon the people who put him to death. But it speaks a better word of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace. That is what Jesus' blood speaks to his people is grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And this author, he, he belabors these mountains because he tells them, you haven't come Christians, not just Jews. Christians, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. Like you right now have already come there by the blood of Jesus. You are there with God. Yes, your feet are here on earth, but your feet are also equally in heaven with God right now. He's saying you have already come to that mountain. Yes, you need to persevere in faith. You need to endure in faith, but you are already there. Like you have already been reconciled to God. And he's saying to them, do not be tempted to go back to Sinai. Do not be fooled into thinking if you go back to the old covenant that you can cross that line and not be struck down. Like if you try to keep God's law and you try to approach him on your own merit apart from Christ, you will be struck down. And he wants them to know you already have the gracious privilege of being on Mount Zion. Stay there. Like keep your feet there. Know what a privilege it is that you are at Mount Zion. So he talks of those two mountains, but he, he furthers his point with the second paragraph by talking about two outcomes, two eventual things that are going to happen to all people, all kingdoms, uh, that these two outcomes, he starkly contrasts them just like he does these mountains. And he's going to talk about this shaking that's going to happen eventually. That this etern in eternity, or not eternity, at some point in the future, there's going to be this shaking the results of which last for eternity, right? This shaking that is done by God himself. And you see this in verses 25 to 27, and then we'll hit the last couple of verses for the, the relevance for this. But he starts the second paragraph by talking about God warning people, right? He uses that language of God warning, of both God warning back then, like in the days of Moses, but then also a way that he's warning us even now. In their day, when he wrote this letter, but I would say God is still warning us even today. And he, he, what happened, that warning he says that they didn't escape when they refused him, in verse 25, what he's referring to, I think, is this warning in the days of Moses that God gave to his people, right? As he gave that law to them, and he said, you all break this, the result is curse and exile. Like It's not just perpetual blessing and pleasantries. If you all break this covenant, there is results. There is judgment that is going to come upon you. He had warned them, and they refused to listen, right? And God came good on his word. Like he sent them away from the land. He sent them into exile. He didn't ultimately abandon them, but he came good on his warning. And the author is saying that God now warns us from heaven, right? The verse, end of verse 25, that God is now presently warning us, not just here on earth, but warning us from heaven. And what he is saying by implication in verse 25 is if we don't heed his warning about going back to Sinai, 
If we try to go back there, if we try to engage God via the law and come to him through the law, he is saying there's a worse judgment that will come upon us. That is just as sure as exile was for the Israelites, there's a worse eternal judgment that will come upon us. Not just an earthly exile, but an eternal judgment that will come upon us. There will be no escape. And so verse 26 and 27 uh, starts to talk about this shaking. It starts to use this image of shaking, right? And he, he says that back at Mount Sinai that God shook the earth. His voice when he spoke shook the earth. The, the ground around Sinai was shaking. There was trembling happening there. But he is saying that God has promised to do, he has pledged to do, and even warned us that someday he is going to do a greater shaking. That's not just of the earth, that's not just of some little pinpoint place on the earth, but that is going to be of everything, right? He said, and he quotes this uh, phrase or this sentence from verse, in verse 26 from the book of Haggai, a book we don't frequent a lot as, as Christians today, but in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, God had said this very thing through uh, Haggai. He had said, yet once more I will shake, hear this, not only the earth, but also the heavens, right? The heavens and the earth is everything. Like there's going to, Haggai said by the Spirit that someday God is going to shake everything. Like all things in creation, even in the heavens, he is going to shake. And this is not just like a pleasant shaking. I can't even imagine what that is. This is a shaking of judgment, right? It's a shaking of like sifting things or sorting things, right? Like shaking and seeing what remains and what's removed, Right? That's the two outcomes that he talks about here, that as he shakes these things at the end of time, there's going to be two outcomes only. There are going to be things that remain, people that remain, and then there's going to be a removal of people, a removal of things. Right? Both those terms appear in verse 27, remaining and removing. And what he is implying here very clearly and even stating is that what will remain at that final shaking is Zion and all who inhabit it, right? That is what will remain, is Zion and all who inhabit it. He says in verse 28 that there in that city is a kingdom that cannot be shaken, right? It cannot be shaken because God is there. He's the one doing the shaking, right? And he's received sinners like us into that place. His shaking of us was already done at the cross, right? Like his shaking of us was done there. So there is no more shaking for the people of God, but there is a shaking for everyone else. Those who are not solidly having their feet on Mount Zion will be part of this final shaking where there is a removal of all things. And he doesn't fully describe what that entails, but he, I think he's speaking clearly of hell and eternal judgment. Not that they cease to exist but that there is a final judgment that will last for eternity. Just like the solidity of Zion will last for eternity, so will the removal of these things that are not there as Zion. And included amongst those who will be removed is the people who try to approach God via Mount Sinai, right? via the law. 
Like if these people seek to go back to approaching God at Mount Sinai and charging up that mountain, when that shaking comes, they don't have solid ground under their feet. They can't say to God at that point, hey, I tried to go up Mount Sinai. I tried to keep your law. I tried to do what you said. God will tell them, I gave you a way to come to Mount Zion and you knew it. And you forsook it. You, you chucked it. Like you gave it away. Like he, he will not receive people who've tried to come to him via Mount Sinai, via the law. And as you think about this shaking at the end of time that you will be part of, that I will be part of, I do not want that ultimately to have the effect upon you of terrorizing you. But hear me on this. If you do not know Jesus... If you have not come to God through Jesus by placing your trust in him, you don't get out of the shaking. The shaking will come. And if you do not place your trust in Christ and and turn from your sin to him in faith, you will be shook and removed by God, not remain with God. And I want to offer on behalf of God to every person in this room today that you can join me and join many of us with our feet on Mount Zion today. You don't have to slowly charge up Mount Sinai. You don't have to like clean your act up and get your act together to impress God, to have your feet put on Mount Zion. All he asks you to do, and it's a big ask, is to turn from your sin, acknowledge, I have rebelled against you. I should be down at the base of this mountain. But I know Jesus died for my sins. Like he took my sins on himself and he was shook for me. And I believe he was raised from the dead. Please welcome me to your mountain. Like welcome me to your city. Welcome me to your people. Welcome me to yourself. And if you come to God on those terms, your feet will be on Mount Zion today. And they will last there forever that you will be on solid ground once and for all. And that is the only solid ground for your soul. There is no other place you can stand. There is no other savior. There's no other mediator that you can turn to. And you cannot be your own mediator. And praise God, I love this term where he talks in verse 24 about the sprinkled blood of Jesus. I think there are many. I think I maybe was this way for a long time. I don't know. We believe that Jesus' blood was shed for sinners. But we have not really seen Jesus' blood as being sprinkled and applied to me. Like, what God calls for you from you is not just to believe Jesus died for sinners at large. Like that he, he suffered for sinners, but that he suffered for your sins. Like that his sacrifice is effective for you. It doesn't need to just exist in some heavenly bowl somewhere, but it needs to be applied to you. You have to acknowledge your own sin and confess it and ask for forgiveness. His blood doesn't just need to be shed, but sprinkled upon you, applied to you, and today it can if you ask for forgiveness. So much more I could say about that. But we, uh, there are these two outcomes these two mountains. So I want to end by talking the last little bit about what effect I think this text was supposed to have. These, mount, these images of mountains and of shaking and two outcomes. What effect was it supposed to have on God's people as they heard it, as they read it? Thankfully, he tells us, right? Verse 28, as you get down to the end of the second paragraph, there's a therefore, and he tells us something to do in response to these things, right? 
Therefore, what? Uh, he says, therefore, because like we've come to Mount Zion, this, uh, this place where God dwells and we come through Christ. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, like since we have that kingdom and we're part of it. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So the impact he's wanting these realities to have, these mountains and these outcomes, is to affect how Christians worship. Right? Like how do we engage with God? How do we talk to God? How do we sing? How do we pray? How do we hear from him? How do we worship him? And I, I tried synthesizing what he's saying here into these two twin words of sweetness and sobriety. That the worship of Christians, as we worship our God together, should be marked by sweetness and sobriety. And I want to show you where I, I see those things in this text. Sweetness. This author wants their worship to be impacted by the solidness of the ground under their feet, right? He, he, uh, he reminds them uh, in verse 28, you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You already, like you have received that, you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You have solid feet under there. And he wants them to know, even though I think for these people, he wanted them to know, even if your enemies try to shake the ground you're standing on here, they try to intimidate you, they try to, to get you to revert back to Judaism or to abandon your faith in Jesus, even if suffering and affliction comes to you and you feel the earthly ground around you shaking, he's reminding them you have an eternal, unchanging, unshakable kingdom. And he says, let us be grateful because of that right like not just know it conceptually and just never let it actually sink into our heart like and just believe it doctrinally like hey i have a kingdom that cannot be shaken but i'm just going to proceed taking stuff for granted and kind of blase going through the motions he's saying let us be grateful for this like, that's the biggest understatement there can be right like be grateful for this like you who should be, we who should be down at the base of Sinai awaiting that final shaking have been granted access to God even now. And like we have solid feet under our, our solid ground under our spiritual feet. Let us be grateful in our worship. Let us have a sweetness of heart in how we praise our God together. May God, may he, we never just go through the motions of just monotony of, yeah, we just sing the songs and we pray the prayers, you know, and like we just hear the guy talk for a little bit and then we go out the door, yada, yada, yada. That must never, ever, ever be how the people of God worship him, right? Let us be grateful. There should be a sweetness. And I, I would ask you that. I'm not seeking to unnecessarily convict or condemn, but I would ask each of you who claim Christ in this room, is there a sweetness in your worship of God? Is there gratefulness in your worship of God? Is that something that if people were to watch you and listen to you, uh, do they sense gratefulness and sweetness in your soul as you praise God with his people? Or do they see somebody who is just going through the motions, who has a coldness, a dullness in their heart and soul toward the Lord? Or do they see sweetness and thankfulness in your heart for who he is and what he's done for you? Do you just go through the form of worship without realizing the realities that these things are pointing us to? 
that we don't just assemble with hundreds of people here, but we assemble with all those who are in heaven and angels himself and with God himself. Like, do you get that? Like, do you see that when we come together that as part of what is going on or do you just come out of duty or out of habit, out of routine or out of obligation? Maybe another way to ask is, does your worship of God right now in this life, does it at all resemble how you think you will worship God when your feet are squarely on Mount Zion? Does it look at all like that? Or do you just think some switch is going to be flipped when you die and now you're just going to have joy and now you're going to have thankfulness and now you're going to have this ecstasy? Like, does your worship at all now resemble what it will look like on that final day? So I would just encourage you, I don't want to lay a form on you or on myself of what worship must look like, of your hands raised or your, of whatever, hands in pockets, or do you stand or do you sway or do you whatever, like, but sing like you mean it. Like, the things we sing are glorious, like, and we just sing it ho-hum sometimes. Like, are we part of Zion or not? Like, are we assembling with angels and with Jesus himself? Are we just assembling with people, Hoosiers here? Like, sing like you mean it and pray like you believe God's actually hearing it. Like, they're not just going to the ceiling and echoing around this room for a second and gone, but they were actually speaking to God, right? And when you hear his word read, when you hear his word preached, listen as if it is God speaking as oracles to you. When you hear this read, that is exactly what's happening. And when you hear a preacher seeking to, to speak his word, it's as if Peter says he's speaking the oracles of God to you. Do you hear sermons like that? Do you hear the scriptures being read like that? Or do you check out for a second? When you give offerings, give offerings with a cheerful heart. Not just out of, I need to give X amount or I haven't given in a while. Give with cheerfulness to God's mission and to, to further the gospel of who uh, Jesus is and what he's done for us. We, if you want to use this image, we have, if we're Christians, we in a sense have one foot here in Winona Lake right now. We equally, even more truly, have one foot on Mount Zion right now. Right? We must not just worship on this foot, right? Of just going through the earthly routines. But remember, my other foot is squarely on Mount Zion. I need to worship as though that is true. So it should be marked by sweetness, but it should also be marked by sobriety, right? Except we're to offer acceptable worship. That tells us, hey, there's certain types of worship that is pleasing to God, right? Uh, but it's not just that it's to be sweet, not just that it's supposed to be grateful, but it should have a sobriety to it, right? And this may be a corrective to some others amongst us or an encouragement to others amongst us now that we need to have a sense of sobriety in how we worship, right? He says that our worship, verse 29, he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with what? With reverence and awe. Right? Those should be markers of how God's people worship him. That we should have reverence and awe within our hearts. And this could be a corrective, an exhortation to those of us who sometimes become too casual in our, or flippant maybe in our engagement with God, or just purely emotive, and we're, we're not really thinking about the weight of who we're engaging with, of who we're praising, who we are offering this worship to. Right? When we come to worship, when you come to worship God, you are encountering the creator of the universe, right? But that's who we're worshiping, 
Like, we're not just worshiping some idea or some fellow human being. Like, we are worshiping the God of the universe, the triune God at that of the universe, the ruler of all things. If you have trepidation when you talk to your boss or to the mayor or to the governor or to the president or whoever, should we not have reverence for the creator of all those people? Those people are like dust on a scale compared to this God that we get to worship and whose presence we get to come and who we sing to and pray to and hear from. No one at the foot of Mount Sinai, I guarantee you they didn't speak English, but none of them would have been calling God their homeboy, right? Or the old man upstairs or the big guy or anything like irreverent terms like this, they would never have dared to speak of God like that. And we must not be flippant because we've been granted access to God to just take it for granted, become trivial and flighty when we worship him. There should be no yawning or boredom or over-familiarity with God, forgetting the reverence that we should have in our hearts. And it's interesting to me, I don't know if this threw you for a loop, but how he ends this text, verse 29, it wasn't what I was expecting because he's saying that, we have this kingdom that can't be shaken, and he's talking about the solidity of Mount Zion, and then it's like he reminds them right at the end, our God's a consuming fire. And I think sometimes we can become so familiar and take the, the death and resurrection of Jesus so for granted that we just almost act like I just deserved this all along. Like, why wouldn't God have accepted me? Like, of course. Like, I, I've grown up in the church. Like, I've always known God. It's just who I am. No, it is not. Like, every one of us should be consumed by the fire of his holiness, right? Every one of us, including the one speaking, should have been consumed by the fire of God's holiness because we have sinned against him, we've rebelled against him, and it's like he reminds them of this phrase. That phrase appeared back in Deuteronomy in Moses' day of God as a consuming fire. It's like he wants them to remember we don't serve a different God than the God that was meeting with them at Mount Sinai, right? That same God who had said, don't cross his line or death comes to you, that's still the same God we come to. He, he's not less holy or less demanding, right? It's that the demands have been satisfied, right? But may we never forget, though, what our judgment should be. Like what our, our standing should be with God apart from Christ. If we remember that, not in a shaming, condemning way, but in a humbling way, that will be for our good, right? It will improve the way that we worship, that we're not going to come to him with arrogance or naivety or with just lackadaisicalness in our hearts, over-familiarity. We will have reverence and awe. We remember what we deserve and what God has granted to us. That will affect the way that we worship him. So just very practically, I would encourage you from this text, when we come together for worship, I think sometimes we in our culture think that what we are doing is mostly for our own sake. Like that I'm coming here to be filled up. I'm coming here to be encouraged. I'm coming here to be edified. And that is good. That is part of what Christian worship is supposed to be, is for our good, for God to meet with us, build us up and edify us. But that is not primarily why we get together, right? Note in this text, he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship, right? Like when we come together, we're not so much coming to receive first and foremost from each other or from God, but we are coming to express things to him and about him and give him something that's pleasing to him, that's honoring to him. That's what we're doing when we worship, right? 
are, receive, are receiving is important, but it's secondary. I, I heard a funny little quip. Some of you have heard this too. I don't know where this originally came, uh, but it could apply in a, in a lot of circumstances. They were imagining a hypothetical where somebody comes up, I think, to the pastor and says, you know what, I, just, I wasn't really enjoying worship today. Like, I just couldn't get into worship today. And that the pastor in response says, that's okay, it wasn't, we weren't worshiping you. Right? Like, uh, but we so have it turned on its head. And I don't think we even realize it oftentimes. Like, we come first and foremost saying, what can I get? Like, what can I receive? And I pray every Sunday, every week that you receive much. Like, that we receive much that God ministers to us. But what is most important is what God receives. That he receives honor and thanks and praise, expressions uh, of our worship to him, right? I want to end with uh, just this briefly. There's a, a phobia I learned of this week uh, called, having to do with earthquakes, it's called seismophobia. Uh, it's a fear of earthquakes. Um, and that does develop for people sometimes when they've lived through earthquakes, like that quote at the beginning uh, that I read. And that person, if you remember, was saying, when they look out the window of their house, they didn't use this word, but it's like they're afraid. This ground's going to shake again. Like that what I think is solid is not really solid. What I want to remind us of as Christians, if you're a believer in Christ with me, is that as you look out any window in Zion, what you see is solid ground, right? And you don't have to worry about it shaking now or in eternity when we are resurrected and with him, physical bodies and all, in the new earth, and we look out our windows then. Like what you will see is solid ground. Every step you take will be on solid ground, not just physically, but relationally with God and with his people, Right? And we are on the path right now to Zion. We're, we're making it there as God's people. But this text will tell us that in one other sense, we're already there. Like we are already standing on the solid ground of Mount Zion. And so when your life, when the ground starts to shake here, and it will, and it does, you don't have to fear that the ground under your spiritual feet is shaking. Like it is not. It is solid. It will stay solid. That ground will not shake. And so may we worship the God who's granted us access to Mount Zion with sweetness and sobriety.